Some contests aren't worth winning. Have you heard of the Rolling in the Grits competition in St. George, South Carolina? All of these contests I'm about to list for you are real, by the way. Rolling in the Grits. How about the, I love this one, this is my favorite, the Shin Kicking World Championship. And there is video of just people kicking each other's shins as hard as they can. It's incredible. And you know what? That one's not even American, so I don't know what they're doing. They're, that, I thought, I, I was like, that's definitely one of ours. It, it's not. There's a World Bog Snorkeling Championship. And then many wife-carrying contests that can be found all over the world, from Kazakhstan to our own state of Maine. In the United States Championship, wife-carrying contestants compete to win the wife's weight in beer and five times her weight in cash, which they're, the people who won recently, they, they went home with like 520 bucks, right? So, and a bunch of beer, I guess. Another real thing. Tonight, we sit ringside at one of the saddest wife-carrying contests ever, Leah and Rachel spend years battling for position and for their husband's affection by seeing who could bear the most sons. Now, we watch in astonishment, but we shouldn't forget that these were real people, an absolutely real family, and that these would have been long years of gloom and unhappiness and strife. When we left off in Genesis, we were told of course, Jacob had married both of the sisters, but we were told that Jacob did not love both of his wives. His heart belonged to Rachel. His marriage to Leah was an unwelcome technicality. And now uh, the ugly drama starts playing out. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb, but Rachel was unable to conceive. Uh, this passage tonight covers somewhere between seven and 13 years of time. And during that time, Leah was neglected by Jacob, her husband. Your version may say hated or despised or unloved. Pick your poison. This is a heartbreaking reality for Leah, uh, a real wife, a real person. She loves her husband and will find that she yearns very much for him to love her back, but he doesn't and he won't. No matter what happens, he just won't love her. Of course, we aren't the only ones watching this play out. The Lord was too. And with tender kindness, we see He shows the love and affection that her husband refused to give. God would not neglect or despise her. And just always a good reminder, you know, some of these stories in the book of Genesis, uh, which deal so much with the fact that man is, uh, has sinned and God is working out His plan to bring redemption and reconciliation, but a lot of really ugly stories, frankly, in the book of Genesis, but God is never ugly in any of them. In fact, what we see again and again is the Lord God bringing beauty from the ashes of human ruin, and we see God uh, pouring out grace on the undeserving, and we see God bringing love and care and affection uh, to the rejected and the despised and the hated. In this culture and time, as many of you know, a woman's social standing and in many ways her self-worth was tied to whether she was bearing sons for her husband or not. 
But there would have been other layers that would have made this particular family situation even sharper and more urgent in certain ways. First of all, we have to remember that, you know, last time we were studying, we, we talked so much about Jacob being deceived, and of course he was, but we have to remember that Rachel had been cheated by her sister just as much as Jacob had, and so obviously that would have uh, put a huge layer of tension and resentment in their relationship. But second, Jacob, of course, would have told both of his wives about his incredible meeting with God at Bethel, where he saw the vision of what we commonly call Jacob's Ladder. And he would have explained, hey, the God of heaven and earth, the one that maybe we've heard about from, you know, our ancestors, he revealed himself to me and showed me the glories of his heaven and his, his habitation and showed me his angels ascending and descending. And he told me that my offspring were going to be like the dust of the earth. And now that opportunity and responsibility is being given to these wives, and yet neither of them have any kids. And so, obviously, there's all sorts of layers of, uh, all sorts of edges of, of competitiveness that were going to set in. Verse 32, Leah conceived, gave birth to a son, named him Reuben. For she said, the Lord has seen my affliction. Surely my husband will love me now. So the race was on. As we watch it play out, I want us to notice how absent, how silent, how ironically impotent Jacob is throughout the whole passage. Even though he is the, the, the partner in the covenant with God, even though he is the one who's received all the birthright and all the blessing from Isaac, even though he is now the leader not only of this family, which he is, but the leader of the covenant family of faith, we find that he absolutely refuses to take up his calling as a husband, as a father, as even just a follower of God. He refuses. He does not lead, he does not comfort, he does not pray, he does not correct, he doesn't make peace, he doesn't instruct. He does almost nothing in the text. He just becomes a prop in this bitter rivalry between Rachel and Leah. Even in the record of the conceptions throughout this passage, and there's 13 or 12 of them, excuse me, we don't have the usual inclusion of the husband, being as, as delicate as I can. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we read things like this. Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived, right? Or we read Abram slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant, right? We see both parties there. But where is Jacob? You're never going to read about Jacob being almost anywhere in this passage except for in a couple of very sad scenes. Obviously, he's the father, but it's as if he is completely lifeless. And it's because he's refusing to walk in newness of life with God who has called him to something much different than what he is doing right now. Remember, he's on the run. He's outside of the land of promise. He's not with the family he's supposed to be in. He's nowhere near where God wants him to be. And we see here that he is spiritually lifeless, and we, we have to note his, his, that he's just an absentee voter in this entire proceeding here. 
Husbands and fathers have an essential and unique responsibility. Of course, wives and mothers do too. But the Bible explains that the family must work together, each member fulfilling their specific calling, and there's particular regard given to fathers in the Bible so that the family can grow and thrive and become strong. Unfortunately, the United States has the highest rate of single-parent households in all the world. Listen, that's not a judgment on anyone here tonight because that's a reality for a lot of people in and around our lives. It's not a judgment. It's just a reminder to all of us as God's people of the fact that we do not live in a Christian culture. It's not. We don't live in a society that loves the Lord and loves His Word and is interested in doing things the way He does things. The voters of Kansas proved that once again for us last night, right? Our society, our culture is not interested in going God's way, and we have to live here. (laughs) But we don't want to settle for the world's standard not in personal morality, not in family morality, not in any of those things. We want to go God's way. We don't want, and we don't, the good news is we don't have to be like Jacob and Haran, right? Where we're just like, well, this is what happens around here. And so I'll settle to the lowest level, just like the pagan culture around me. We can still walk by faith, and we can still trust God and and know that He will do His good work as we follow after Him. And if you tonight find yourself in a family situation that is full of strife, like we're reading about here, be encouraged that even though that is very difficult and very painful and doesn't have a lot of easy answers, be reminded that you can walk with God. You can go God's way even if your family does not. And in this case, this family, which is going to go through so much turmoil and so much pain, you know the one thing that they needed? They needed Jacob to go God's way and say, hey, I am going to obey God. And from there, it was going to ripple out to an astounding degree to his family, but he just wouldn't. Verse 33, Leah conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, the Lord heard that I'm neglected and has given me this son also. And so she named him Simeon. Both times, Leah has acknowledged the Lord's part in gifting her these boys. Of all the characters in our story tonight, she is the most spiritual of the bunch by far, at least in this phase. We're going to track her progress in a little bit. So Jacob clearly had been telling her things that he had learned from Abraham and Isaac, right? Remember, Leah and Rachel, they aren't they don't know about who we recognize as the God of Israel, you know, the God of Noah, the God of Abraham. They live in a pagan country, in a pagan family. And so Jacob has been telling them things about his God, and yet we see that Jacob fails to live by those truths. He never prays, he never worships, he never serves. And the result is the near collapse of his family. It's certainly the collapse of their relationships, But as we watch them just spiral into uh, just a a tailspin wreckage of relationship, uh, it's an interesting uh, contrast that Jacob clearly has told them things about the Lord, but he's not living by them. Now, despite Jacob's shortcomings, Leah knows the Lord. She calls him Yahweh here. 
And she's confident that he not only sees, but that he hears her, meaning that she had a prayer life with him, and she knew him to be kind and compassionate and generous. Verse 34, she conceived again, gave birth to a son, and said, at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne three sons for him. Therefore, he was named Levi. Leah's story becomes more and more heartbreaking. Look at that at last there. She's just hoping to keep hope alive in her heart. She's trying so hard to keep alive the hope that her husband would, would maybe start to have any kind of warmth, any kind of affection, any kind of, of, of ember of love toward her, but it never happens. In the entire passage, he never speaks to Leah. In fact, he only visits her out of obligation. Verse 35 She conceived again and gave birth to a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. And then Leah stopped having children. And so finally, after years of misery, she calls her personal experience, she calls it affliction, or or you can render that as misery. Finally, after all these years, Leah stopped hoping in Jacob. She gave up. She could recognize that nothing's going to change in his affection towards me. And instead, we see that she's hoping in the Lord. This time, I'll praise Yahweh, she says. And it's a beautiful moment. But notice, just at the time that she starts growing spiritually or, or makes a great leap of progress in her relationship with God and in the attitude of her heart, at that very same time, her personal life becomes more painful and more complicated. She doesn't win over Jacob, but then on top of that, we're told she stops having children. Now, wait, I thought I have struggles in life so that I can become more spiritual, and once I become more spiritual, then God can deliver me from suffering, right? That's not what the Bible teaches, not at all. What it teaches is that because of God's grace and power, we can learn to be content in any situation, and that we can be strengthened in our suffering, and that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now, why did Leah stop having children? Did God close her womb? It's more likely that Rachel demanded that Jacob stop sleeping with her sister uh, because Rachel was a real sore loser. And we'll see that kind of borne out in the text in a little bit. Verse 1 of chapter 30, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she envied her sister, give me sons or I will die, she said to Jacob. Jealousy is such a terrible thing. It sadly comes so naturally to us because it's part of our sin nature. But let's do a little baby study of jealousy between these two sisters. And you see how it never is satisfied no matter what. It will always find one reason or another to gnaw at your heart and deplete your joy if you let it. Leah had spent so many years of her life being jealous of her pretty little sister. Uh, We were told earlier that Rachel was the pretty one. Leah was, well, the not-so-pretty one. And they had grown up together. We're not exactly sure how old they are, but uh, they had grown up together facing this reality. And apparently it was problematic enough that Laban felt the need to sneak Leah into a marriage rather than hope that she would actually get married on her own. 
And so she had spent her whole life being jealous of Rachel's looks and now, of course, jealous of the fact that the man that she loved did not love her back, instead loved her sister. And so she's jealous and, and, and just wishing that she could switch places with Rachel. But then you look at we're brought into Rachel's room. We're brought in to take a look at, you know, Rachel's diary. And what is she doing? She's just as jealous as Leah is, just in reverse. She's jealous of her big sister, jealous that she's able to have babies. It's eating her up inside. She's saying here, I, I'm about to die because I'm so envious of my sister. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says this, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. And we see that rot taking hold of lives in this example here. Rachel's exclamation, of course, reminds us of when Esau came and said, give me that red stuff or I'm going to die. And so people keep running up to Jacob talking about how they're about to die and demanding things of him. Of course, that time with Esau, oh man, Jacob was happy, right? He was so excited because he was able to exploit his brother, take something from his brother. He was ready to do that deal, ready to do that transaction. And now in a sad irony, his wife who he loves comes and says essentially the same thing. I need something from you or I'm going to die. And yet he is powerless to help the woman that he loves. Rachel's outburst reveals more than a simple desire for a child. Is it possible that she's worried that Jacob will stop loving her once that beauty begins to fade? Is it possible that she was thinking, wait a minute, what is my husband's love for me based on? We can also sense Rachel's hatred of her sister as one commentator notes, she can't bear to accept Leah as an equal. She's always been over Leah in their relationship, in their marriage relationship here, and she can't bear to accept the fact that, well, yeah, I have the looks, but she has the kids. And so she becomes obsessed, not just with having a child, but having sons, plural, give me sons. And you see that it, it, is, a, it is a rivalry, it is a, a jealous competition that, Leah's, or that Rachel's talking about here. Verse 2, Jacob became angry with Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God? He has withheld offspring from you. This was a big fight. Scholars say that Jacob raged at Rachel with a hot anger. People who know things about Hebrew that I don't. Uh, this was not just a small thing. It was a big deal. Their family relationships are continuing to break down more and more. Jacob is now becoming alienated from both of his wives. Uh, he doesn't like one of them and is only there out of obligation. The one he does like, he's completely angry at. She's mad at him, and so bad scene. He spews out that God himself was withholding children from Rachel. Even if that were true... We have to ask why Jacob didn't do anything about it. Why didn't Jacob do what his own father had done and intercede for his wife? Remember, Isaac saw that Rebekah was an unable to conceive. And what did he do? He took it to the Lord. It says that Isaac interceded for his wife and that the Lord was receptive to that prayer. And the result was Jacob himself. And now the exact same thing is happening in the next generation, and Jacob, Lee, Jacob essentially says, that's not my problem. This guy's not a good husband. He, he is not doing the things he's supposed to be doing. 
So not only is he refusing to simply pray for his wife, it's also clear he doesn't really care about the promise God had given him at Bethel. Listen, if God was withholding offspring, he said, God's withholding offspring from you. Okay, well, let's pause and think about that. If God is withholding offspring from this family, that's a big deal. Because God had said, I have all these plans for this family, and they all surround lots of offspring. And so if it was true, if Jacob really thought that, or if Jacob had really heard from God that he was withholding offspring, wouldn't you think that he would say, I want to find out why that's happening? Let's figure this out, because obviously this isn't what we want to happen, and it isn't what God wants to happen, but he doesn't care about any of that. He says to his beloved wife, that's not my problem. This is your fault, not my fault. Verse 3, then she said, here's my maid, Bilhah. Go sleep with her, and she'll bear children for me, so that through her I can build a family too. So Rachel gave her slave Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Rachel should have gone to the Lord with her problem. Instead, she went to her slave. Now, undoubtedly, she had known the saga of Rachel, uh, excuse me, of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. She would have known. He would have told her. These are the family stories. But she decides to try the very same scheme again. Now, in this passage, Bilhah and Zilpah are going to be called wives, but they are not treated equally. In reality, they were what we would call concubines, and they'll be referred to as much later on. Family life was not improving, not even a little bit. Verse 5, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has vindicated me. Yes, he's heard me and given me a son. So she named him Dan. Listen, Rachel was not vindicated. This is one of those times where people are saying, doing something crazy that is outside of the plan of God, the will of God, the morality of God, and then blaming God for it and saying, what, you know, what a great thing God has done. She was completely wrong in her pronouncement here. Leah had been calling out to God out of a broken heart in real prayer, wishing for love, seeking the Lord. Rachel was just angry that her sister would dare have a child before her. Now, God is gracious to this family, but this, what Rachel has done, is not an action that the Lord is pleased by. The story of Hagar and Ishmael shows us very plainly that God does not sign off on this kind of human scheming. The other sons, uh, you know, would be, there are a number of sons that would be born of Bilhah and Zilpah, but I find it interesting that the first one from this scheme, Dan, a lot of problems when you move forward looking at Dan's descendants. Uh, Dan is left out when Israel's descendants are listed in 1 Chronicles 1 through 9. Dan, as a tribe, is not included in the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7. Dan's tribal land was one of the two sites where Jeroboam would set up one of his golden calves that led Israel into idolatry. Herbert Lockyer writes this, The history of the tribe of Dan is darker than the history of any other of the 12 tribes of Israel. Persistent idolatry clung to the Danites from first to last. When we place ourselves on the throne of our hearts, when we seek to take the helm of our lives from the Lord, the result is idolatry. God cannot be pleased by this kind of selfish human scheming. We need to cast out the mentality that leads to Dan from our thinking. We just have to. It never ends up well. We need to cast it out. 
Verse 7 says, Rachel's slave Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob's second son. Rachel said, In my wrestlings with God, I have wrestled with my sister and won. And she named him Naphtali. Tammy Schneider writes this, Although Rachel is prettier than Leah, she doesn't seem to be nicer. <laughs> this was not about having, uh, this was not about being a mother. This was about dominating her sister. It was about crushing her. We see how envy has poisoned Rachel. It's poisoned her uh, decision-making. It's poisoned her thinking. It's poisoned her heart through and through. Remember, she blamed Jacob for her infertility. This is your fault that I'm not having kids. Well, obviously, he could produce sons with just about any other woman that came along, right? So she's wrong about that. She's in an all-out brawl with her sister where she's like, man, all I care about is crushing the life out of my sister. And here she admits that even she's wrestling even with God himself. She's blinded by envy and has made everyone her adversary. And she's not realistic about her situation at all. I've won, she said. Excuse me? Check the scoreboard, lady. It's four to two. And your two has an asterisk after it. But we see what, we see what jealousy has done to her mind and has done to her heart. She's flailing spiritually. One commentator notes she's simultaneously raging at God openly, but also boasts in having won his favor somehow. She doesn't acknowledge God's generous grace as Leah had, but she congratulates herself. I won these boys for myself. She is all messed up, twisted by her selfishness and by her jealousy. And we see how this kind of selfishness breeds worse selfishness in the next generation. Bruce Waltke points out how Laban had used his daughters briefly as pawns to benefit himself economically, right? And now they are taking that kind of selfishness to the next level. They are treating their many sons even worse, and they're trying to harm one another. Laban was not a good dad and wasn't doing a good thing, but he wasn't trying to harm his daughters. He was trying to benefit himself and, you know, try to kill two birds with one stone. But now we see at the next level that kind of selfishness, that kind of scheming is leading to, no, I actually want to kind of crush the spirit of my, my sister. And they're using all their sons as pawns, using their husband as pawns. And then what's going to happen to the next generation who grew up in this kind of environment? Well, the sons would grow to have the kind of jealousy that would lead them to outright violence, murder, and trafficking their own flesh and blood. Yeah, let's sell our brother to Ishmaelites. We were going to kill him, but we wouldn't get any money from killing him. So let's sell him into slavery, and he'll just be gone for the rest of his life. Wow. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her slave Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So years into this fight, Leah seems to have drifted away from the Lord. No longer is she a woman of prayer and spiritual hope, at least not in this section. She decides to go ahead and take the low road she had taken her sister's identity on their wedding night, and now she'll take her sister's idea to score a few more points in their fight. Verse 10, Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, what good fortune, and named him Gad. This is one of the sadder moments, really, of the text. Leah, who had been the one person who was praising God and calling him by name and had a, had a tender relationship with him in her affliction, now is acting much more pagan in her decisions. She's ta uh, the name Gad was the name of a Middle Eastern deity who brings good luck. 
Isaiah mentions him in uh, chapter 65 of his book where he talks about God's people abandoning the Lord and instead going after this God fortune, Gad. Verse 12, when Leah's slave Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, Leah said, I'm happy that the women call me happy. And so she named him Asher. So now we see the family strife has now spilled out of the tent into the wider community of people that they live among. We get an image of of the ladies of the land talking together, picking sides, gossiping with one another. What was the family of faith supposed to be doing? Rather than blessing the world, more and more people in their sphere of influence are being objectified and exploited and dragged downward to serve the jealousy and the selfishness of Leah and Rachel. And just when it seems like this contest can't go any lower, sin finds a way. Verse 14, Reuben, little Reuben, he went out during the wheat harvest and found some mandrakes in the field. And when he brought them to his mother, Leah, Rachel asked, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So little Reuben finds a fruit that were known as love apples back then. And at the time, they were thought to be an aphrodisiac and an aid in fertility. Culturally, that's what was believed. Rachel must have been absolutely desperate to come to her sister with this please on her lips. Look at what they've been doing for years to each other, the hatred, the resentment, the rivalry, and now she comes hat in hand, I guess veil in hand, and has to give a please to Leah. It was a humiliating moment of desperation, and Leah, oh, as a, as a big sister, she was not about to let that moment pass. Verse 15, Leah replied to her, isn't it enough that you have taken my husband? Now you also want to take my son's mandrakes? Well, then, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So it seems that Rachel set the schedule for Jacob, uh, as it were, And that makes sense of Leah's words where she says, you have taken my husband. And it makes sense of why it says she stopped having children because apparently Rachel came to Jacob and said, you're done having kids with my sister. But surely the man of the house, the man who has seen a vision from God himself, this guy surely, the patriarch, will draw a line in the sand and bring his family back from the brink of this madness this far and no farther, farther, surely, He will do the right thing in this obscene situation. Verse 16, when Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come with me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so Jacob slept with her that night. And so again, Jacob is silent, powerless, enslaved, all because he simply wouldn't do what was right. We talked last time about how Jacob is really just an Old Testament version of the prodigal son feeding the pigs there. He didn't have to be there. Just go back to the Father. Just return back to your home and all would be made right. All would be repaired. All would be redeemed. And he just wouldn't. He wouldn't come to his senses. And so he is enslaved here. He could have put a stop to all of this, but he didn't because he wouldn't. He's still a spiritual coward, always running, never facing his own responsibilities, letting others dictate to him instead of the Lord. Verse 17, God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. And she named him Issachar. Sad, Leah no longer calls God Yahweh. 
She uses the less personal term, Elohim, here. But after the backslide of verses 10 and 11, we see that she's starting to draw back to the Lord. She is praying again, and there is God ready to hear, ready to embrace her, ready to show her mercy and pour out his grace. Jacob, the blessed son who had been given everything by God, was reduced to being a hired hand by his uncle Laban, and now he's just a hired hand even to his wives. This story is no longer an adventure or a comedy or anything like that. It's, a, it's just downright a tragedy, at least in this section. What will it take for Jacob to come to his senses and turn to the Lord and follow after the God of his fathers? Verse 19, then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. God has given me a good gift, Leah said. This time my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons for him. And she named him Zebulun. Later, Leah bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Leah is an interesting character to study in this text. She started off absolutely miserable watching her hope die. She learned to trust the Lord and accept his love as enough. But then she gives in to jealousy and it causes her to drift away from the Lord. She no longer prays. She no longer resembles the faithful woman she once was. Finally, she starts coming to her spiritual senses again and drawing nearer to God, but we see that the progress she had made at the beginning, it was sort of lost. She, she, she's back to her focus on Jacob's affection, right? She's not in the place she was when she had Judah. She's back to saying, well, maybe he'll honor me. He wouldn't. He wasn't going to. We'll see him do something pretty ugly in chapter 33, showing exactly how much, well, exactly where he raided Leah, and it's not what she would have wanted. Now, Jacob had other daughters not listed here. We learned that in chapters 37 and 46, but Dinah singled out because of something that's going to happen in a few chapters. Verse 22, and then God remembered Rachel, and he listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son, and she said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add another son to me. So it seems that Rachel has finally turned to prayer, real prayer, rather than just jealous complaining and anger. But she still, like all of us, still needed a heart correction. Even as she's delivering that son that she's been waiting for for so long and hoping for and praying for and demanding and all this stuff, even as she's delivering that son, finally her immediate reaction is to name him, Now give me another son. Okay, <laughs> so she's still not ready to surrender either. And little does she know that her next child is going to cost her her life. She doesn't realize what she's asking for. And, you know, one devotional idea that we can learn from the example of Rachel is contentment is a lot more important than we think it is. Even when we want something that's good, we need to learn to be content. It doesn't mean we never ask the Lord for things. We ask the Lord for things all the time. But we need to trust Him to know what is best. And, and seek his will rather than our own. We love to watch dysfunctional families on TV, don't we? We laugh at the Simpsons and the Bunkers and the Bluths. But living in dysfunction isn't something we enjoy. If you're in a family where some members won't follow the Lord, take comfort from this story. The Lord sees, the Lord knows. He hears your prayer. He has a future for you. David, the psalmist, wrote this tender line, even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord cares for me. You can put in sibling, you can put in husband, you can put in wife there. The Lord cares and he knows. And one of the other things we see that's beautiful about this is they put yourself in the position of Leah. Leah is really the, the greatest focus in this set of verses. And she's the one who at least has some sort of walk with the Lord. 
And she's the one in the greatest amount of misery, unloved by her husband, hated by her sister, treated badly. But look at the beautiful thing that God can do even in a life that is full of that kind of suffering. Do you know that Leah had as many sons as all three other wives put together? The three other wives each had two boys. Leah had six. And then we're told here had Dinah, seven, the number of perfection, and so the perfect number of children. Leah was not loved by her husband, but you know what she was? The mother of the priestly tribe, the mother of the royal tribe. Judah came from her. Christ came from her. Levi came from her. The, the Lord did an incredible thing through this afflicted life. And so she suffered, and it was unpleasant. But the Lord shows, oh, I, I am with you in your suffering. I am mindful. I see and I hear and I am with you and I care for you. And even though your husband abandoned you and even though your father and mother abandoned you and even though your sister hates you, I care for you. And we see that he was caring for the others as well. But there's such a beautiful tenderness in the way that he cares for Leah, the hated wife. For your part, follow the Lord, take the high heavenly road, walk with Jesus toward contentment and strength. We're a little bit over, but as we close, I would like to say a few words about some of the implications of this text, particularly when it comes to pregnancy and infertility. Many people in this room have been touched by that unique hardship in one way or another. And so, frankly, what are we to make of this kind of a passage? Is God playing games? God playing games with people's kids and with their fertility? deciding who gets to have a working womb and who doesn't? If these characters were so carnally motivated and so giving in to selfishness, why in the world did God allow this contest to continue? What are we supposed to make of this? The Bible's clear that God is the author of life. It's clear that He is the one who knits us together in our mother's womb from conception forward. That does not mean that he always specifically, determinedly closes wombs. For example, in our text, it does not say that God closed Rachel's womb like he did to the women of Abimelech's house where it says he closed their wombs because he was trying to protect the family of faith. We've seen other characters in Genesis struggle with infertility, and we learn that it's been happening since the fall of man when sin started, and that sin started mangling the goodness of God's created order. And for thousands of years, this has been one of the ways that sin has been robbing mankind and mangling mankind, and that ruin continues today. Why does God then grant children to some and not to others? We can't answer that. We just can't. What we know is that God is more gracious than any of us deserve. I mean, Rachel didn't deserve to have any kids, but neither did Leah, and neither do we in the sense that all we deserve from a holy God is judgment. We don't deserve any kind of good gift from Him. But what the Bible reveals is that this God is a tender, caring, gracious, and generous God who makes it His business to reach down to us with love and affection. Every good and perfect gift comes from God above. And all we can say is that if the Lord is allowing infertility in your life, it is not because you are not good enough. It is not because you aren't important enough or spiritual enough or you haven't prayed enough times or prayed hard enough or shed enough tears. None of that is true. 
That's not what the Bible says. The Lord's love for you is everlasting. It is unqualified. It is unyielding. And the Word of God brings us this encouragement as we suffer, whether that's from infertility or illness or from broken relationships, any kind of suffering that you suffer as a child of God, but in particular in this regard here, uh, since this is a major topic of this section, the Word of God brings us this encouragement that we should not give up on praying and petitioning our Father that we can continue to rejoice in hope because the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up our wounds. This is his promise. And so I don't have a lot of specific answers for why A and not B, but what we do know is true is that this is his promise. He sees you, he hears you, he will never reject you, and his love for you is unwavering, unyielding, unqualified, everlasting. And so we can rejoice in hope, knowing that our Lord cares for us, heals the brokenhearted, and binds up our wounds.